Well, good day, everybody. My name is Lynn Nagel. I'm here with you as a host today. And this interview is going to be in follow-up to the podcast series that has been conducted by Dr. Kathleen McMillan over the last couple of months with a number of healthcare leaders and researchers. Just to tell you a little bit about myself, I've been a nurse for more than 40 years. I've spent most of my career with a foot in practice and the other in academia. And my primary focus has been in the areas of leadership, hospital administration, health and nursing informatics. And after spending 33 years in the Toronto healthcare sphere, I recently returned to my home province of New Brunswick, and I'm now spending most of my time largely in volunteer work, but also continuing a little bit of consulting and advisory work in healthcare, primarily working with the Faculty of Nursing at the University of New Brunswick. And I've also served as the editor-in-chief for the Longwoods Canadian Journal of Nursing Leadership since 2010. Today, I'm pleased to introduce uh, Dr. Kathleen McMillan. Um, She is someone that I have known over the course of many, many years. We began our first uh, meeting, I guess, back at Mount Sinai under the leadership of Dr. Judith Shamian. Kathleen uh, actually graduated from her initial nursing program in 1970 and received a diploma in nursing from the Toronto East General Hospital School of Nursing. And over the next 50 years, uh, she earned degrees in science, anthropology, nursing, and a PhD from the University of Toronto and filled leadership roles in practice, education, academia, and government policy. And she was actually the first provincial chief nursing officer for Ontario. And most recently, she was the director of the School of Nursing at Dalhousie University. She's now retired and she resides in Prince Edward Island. And she continues to participate in many activities directed at strengthening the profession of nursing and also looking at ways in which we can enhance the healthcare system. So much like myself, Kathleen has had a rich career in nursing and healthcare. And in recent months, as I mentioned, she's completed this podcast series sponsored by Longwoods, talking with a number of healthcare leaders, nurse leaders, and researchers focused on what needs to be done and what could be done to create better resiliency in healthcare uh, in a post-pandemic world. And if you haven't listened to the series uh, as yet, I encourage you to do so because many of the issues that we're going to touch on this afternoon uh, have been more deeply discussed within the series. So today, uh, we'll talk about some of the highlights um, that were addressed by the, the leaders in the series, but also want to take this opportunity to uh, talk about some other issues that perhaps didn't come up. So Kathleen, thank you, first of all, for your leadership and the launch and delivery of the podcast series. Uh, I think the varied perspectives that you've brought to bear on this discussion have been incredibly important and and elevated a sense of urgency around some of the issues that need to be addressed in the near term. In order that we have some uh, ongoing, sustained, (laughs) decent functioning within our healthcare system, and and more than just decent, but to basically get us to a place where we have a health system that we can be wholly proud of and feel comfortable using as citizens. So you've had a lot of rich conversations, and I'd like to begin with having you perhaps talk 
a little bit about some of the, the key themes that have emerged through those conversations. Well, thanks very much uh, for the kind introduction, Lynn, and the opportunity to kind of reflect on what came out of these uh, discussions and podcasts. I think the first one where uh, Ann Snowden talked about the supply chain vulnerability for uh, Canada was really very important because that led to a lot of initial problems with uh, adequate access to personal protective equipment for healthcare providers. So um, later on with uh, access to immunizations uh, so that we could start uh, immunizing Canadians uh, in the current situation. There were shortages too of really key drugs that were required for treating patients who were acutely and critically ill. And so all of this really points to the need for Canada to um, develop its own uh, independence around certain types of uh, supplies that we've become reliant on globally for providers and a rather murky supply chain. We're not really entirely sure where all the parts come from sometimes. And, um, and I thought that was a particularly interesting conversation. I think the second thing was is that it's very clear that nurses were not adequately valued or consulted for their expertise and how to respond to some of these shortages, uh, also to the staffing issues. And, and in many cases, were treated by management in many uh, settings as commodities or, um, you know, or, or just uh, assets that were disposable in the system. And in many cases, uh, compliance-based strategies were used to manage nurses' anxiety and concern about the safety of the environments that they were working in. So people were basically directed or told things that nurses knew were not evidence-informed, like you can wear the same mask in various rooms with different patients over a 12-hour shift. And that really affected nurses' confidence in the leadership and I think added to some of the anxieties where um, I think if they had been more engaged in, in problem solving about real problems, that that would have been very helpful um, in, in terms of the nursing profession. I think in many cases it made nurses also uh, feel that they'd lost their professional autonomy and felt devalued and exposed to greater risk in in the situation. So that was poorly managed. Um, I think the third message that came out um, was related to the workplace. And I think one of the things that concerns me about the response that many leaders and decision makers are, are making to the current um, shortage of, of personnel and other things is that they seem to be focusing on recruitment, whether that's international recruitment or creating more seats in nursing programs, rather than going back to the reason why we have shortages in the first place, because these shortages predate the pandemic. They, they were there, nurse leaders were raising concerns about these 10 or 15 years ago, mm -hmm. about the supply of, of healthcare personnel, and particularly nurses, who are terribly important because we're, we are across all sectors. We provide care 24 seven, and we're the largest healthcare profession in the country. So if things go wrong with nursing, it does have a lot of, um, uh, a lot of impact on the system. So um, I think those pre-existing gaps and how the pandemic made it worse really need urgent attention. But another feature that came out of this was um, we lack leadership capacity in a lot of places. 
and we don't have adequate data to help leaders make effective decisions. So those are, I think, some of the main themes that came out of the conversations that really point to directions that need to be taken to address uh, these problems. I think one of the things that people fail to understand about the nursing shortage is that a lot of nurses are under participating in the workforce and have been doing for decades as a strategy to manage workload and work-life balance. And if we don't address those workload issues, no matter how many new people we pour into the leaky bucket, we're not going to solve the fundamental problems. Right. And I, I just want to pick up on the, the whole issue of the workplace and all of those issues that have, you know, not necessarily emerged as new issues, but really been exacerbated because of the circumstances of the pandemic. And, you know, it strikes me, you know, if we read about values-based care, and there was a, a seminar just last week about this, um, you know, that really is that quadruple aim that focuses on that clinical experience, which relates directly to the healthcare provider's experience. And if they're, you know, under duress and experiencing burnout, of which we've heard multitudes of clinicians, not just nurses, but physicians and others, we really aren't serving the system well. We've, we've totally missed that fourth core domain of, of that quadruple quadruple aim of, of healthcare. So yeah, why is that missing? The health and well-being of healthcare providers is a critical um, uh, input factor in what you get out of the system in terms of the quality and safety of care. And an exhausted workforce is is not the way to get to the best outcomes. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, even though we, you know, don't have data on that right now, but I cannot believe that there are not errors in judgment being made by exhausted healthcare providers. It, it's got to contribute to patient safety and outcomes problems. So why have we done that? Well, I think there's, um, there's always been the risk, I think, that when you have healthcare providers, and I'm not just talking about nurses here, I'm talking about all healthcare providers, they go into their professions to help people. It's, it's not their main agenda to make money or to you know, gain status or whatever. It's because they really see this as a human service. And what seems to have happened is that people have been held kind of hostage to that in that, you know, the demands kept growing and we just assumed that people would continue to do their best um, in the face of shortages of personnel and other things to, to try to do their best. And then when we had a crisis, we just had no elasticity in the system. And I think that we're hearing from nurses that they're willing to stay until the crisis is over, but that they're really rethinking what do they want to do when once the crisis is over? The problem is, as we've seen, I think some of us initially thought, well, we'll have a crisis for a year or two, kind of based on past experiences of pandemics. But we're not seeing any end to this one. And that's, that's a concern that uh, this is dragging on. And, you know, if you think about past experiences with war, for example, people get exhausted after a while. And, and it's hard to get new recruits to come into a system where things simply aren't working. So in some, in some ways, I think um, we have to really call a halt here and kind of recalibrate on what are we going to do to 
steer our way through this this crisis because at the same time as we're dealing with the acutely ill people from the pandemic all kinds of other people are not getting care needs met or they're delaying care which is having um, another impact on the system and i guess the other thing is that you know in the face of not having a, a good clinical workspace for people to function in it really undermines clinical outcomes and it undermines the patient experience and ultimately, I, I believe, will lead to higher costs. And so uh, it behooves us to really pay attention to this particular area in going forward. And I think, you know, the sense of urgency I, I've never felt before in my career. So I think it's, uh, it's reached a point that we have to deal with it. I would agree with you. I mean, I've been in nursing for 50 years. I've been through four nursing shortages, and this feels different to every other one that I've been Absolutely does. Yeah, so, there's something fundamentally different about this. And in some ways might, um, you know, it might also fit into, um, you know, past experiences that we've had with major crises like pandemics or like war, where people really recalibrate what the meaning of work is, you know, with respect to their personal mm-hmm. lives. And, and so... Yeah. You know, we're hearing about the great exodus, you know, is one of the things that we're hearing that people are starting to think, well, there's more to life than just, you know, going to work. And how do I want to achieve this work-life balance? And it's not, you know, in the old days, physicians working 80 hours a week, and they don't want to do that anymore. Precisely. I mean, that's that's something I hear at every turn. This This workforce today is not going to tolerate the ways of the past and, and not for any length of time. But I also want to um, just pick up on your point about, you know, the voice of nurses, it seems to be missing. And, you know, we, we have a series of issues, you know, where the profession is, is undergoing some dramatic change in this country. What do you think would be key to trying to either restore or regain a voice that makes a difference in terms of health policy? Well, I I think part of it is that people have been busy. I mean, when I interviewed some nurse executives and said, why has the voice of nursing been largely absent in the public domain of discussing the crisis? And they said, we've been busy. (laughs) We've we've basically been trying to steer the ship and create an environment that's as safe as possible for patients and staff. And so we've been kind of consumed with the work. So to me, part of the response to that is to make sure that people have time to be involved in their profession. And if you're you're a nurse and you're working overtime all the time, if you're a nurse leader and you're putting in 60 hours or 70 hours work a week, it doesn't leave a lot of time for um, advocacy for the profession. And and we know when the profession is doing well that um, patient care does well, that these things are linked. So an unhealthy profession leads to unhealthy outcomes in the system. So when we advocate for the profession, it's not selfishness. It's, it's advocating for health care and access to appropriate services for people. So more time and then vehicles, because um, over the past 10, 15 years in Canada, we've seen an erosion of professional advocacy uh, through volunteer professional associations. 
And also, uh, I mean, from my point of view, from when I was working with the Ontario government as a chief nursing officer in the province, my position was quite senior. It was equivalent to an assistant mm-hmm. deputy minister. I sat in on budget meetings and I had direct access to, to the um, a deputy minister. And now those positions are more policy advisors and they're very quite low down in the bureaucracy. So they don't have the same kind of power and influence um, and input. And of course we lost the national chief nursing officer position. That office is gone. And I really believe that had that office still been in existence as we were approaching this crisis, that we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. There was a lack of coordinated input from senior nurse leaders to governments at all levels in the in the years leading up to the pandemic crisis. Yeah, and I, I think we, we've seen the impact of that voice being missed over the course of time many times. I mean, it's it's come up repeatedly that if only we had someone in a federal office that could have input to federal policy, it would make the world of difference. So I think that is something that we continue to hear a call for return to that role. Um, Whether that will come to pass remains to be seen. Um, The other thing, though, I want to pick up on, Kathleen, and heard Anne Snowden talk a bit about it. You've heard me talk about it, certainly over the course of time, and that is the whole lack of effective leveraging of of technology and digitization. And, you know, I've spent 30 years of my career focused in this space. And, you know, I, I, I must be just stubborn, but, you know, I think, you know, it's been a long journey that has really not met us the type of returns that I would have expected after three decades of investment. Do you see this as, you know, a hopeful step if we can, you know, move digitization forward? Is it, it's not a panacea by any means, but do you think that there are opportunities to inform the system differently if we have better information? Well, better information is always better. What what information are you collecting and how are you collecting it and how are you using it to inform decision-making is just as important, right? And what we've seen with uh, electronic health records across the country is that nurses have had very little input into the design and application and, and choice of these of these systems. And what it's actually done is add to nursing workload. It hasn't helped nursing one bit. In fact, it's made, right. made the work much harder because they're generally designed assuming that in a relational practice, you collect data in a linear way and we know that you don't do that. So right. what, nurse, what nurses have to do when they're trying to fill in these electronic health records is go back and forth among sometimes eight different screens because they've picked up a tidbit of information that belongs three screens ago, you know, for example. Right. And, right. And, and nurses collect data for every other health profession. So, you know, so a lot of what we're collecting is for other people to use. And we don't necessarily have systems that offer trends analysis, for example, for decision making for nurses clinically. Like when you when you see a blood pressure, how quickly can you pull up a screen that will allow you to see what that blood pressure has been doing over the past six hours or the past three days? And those are important pieces of clinical information, especially now that nurses work 12 hour shifts and don't have a sustained interaction with the patient or because patients are only in for 24 or 48 hours. 
you don't have the luxury of time to collect key information and then input it and, and be able to pull it out. I think what I'm seeing with digitization so far is nurses are collecting and putting in a lot of data and they're not getting a lot out. And that's, you know, and we're seeing it's taking up to 25% of their workday to just manage data. Yeah, we call that drip, data rich and information poor. You know, we have a tremendous amount of data that we collect. We do not have great information available. And that that goes from a clinical perspective. You know, I've been involved in uh, the Canadian Health Outcomes for Better Information and Care for almost two decades now. And, you know, try as we might to get some consistent, comparable, shareable data from a clinical outcomes point of view, um, it's really been a tough sell to really convince people of the value. People don't think that nurses need information, which is quite right. interesting. I mean, like the whole perception of nursing and nursing practice hasn't really evolved from when I went to nursing school in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. They, the perception is that nurses do and that they don't think and they don't plan and they don't assess and they don't you know, analyze information and so there's there's just is not a sense of how important this is to our practice and and actually you know when we start looking about at at health human resources and trying to consider where is the best use of a particular type of health provider Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have the data that tells us which providers will have the best outcomes relative to their practice for this particular situation. So again, we don't have that information even from an administrative point of view to be able to make good decisions about the allocation of resources. So it, it goes right from the bedside up to the boardroom in my my books. I, I think it's a big Yeah, because you know we say we want evidence-based decision-making, but if we don't have data. Now, in some cases, we have a lot of data like when we feel like we have to prove that nurses can do certain things, like with nurse practitioners. I mean, there have been more randomized control trials on nurse practitioners and outcomes than <laughs> there ever were on doctors and, nurse and, and their outcomes. So uh, politically, that was important. But, you know, in terms of your average med surge unit or your long-term care facility, we don't know what difference it makes what proportion of professional staff you have to unregulated care providers or who can do what and still get good outcomes. And so we do a lot of in vivo experimenting and then find out, you know, six or eight months later, gee, that wasn't a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) And then we go back. So, and I keep thinking, you know, like here's an industry that has, is worth billions of dollars and if a Fortune 500 company operated like this, they would go out of business. Absolutely. Absolutely. It just, anyway. And, and some of the decision-making, I think I was telling you one time, I think about how, you know, you get into these situations where money is tight. And if you were running a first-class four-star restaurant and you decided that your overhead costs were going up because food costs are getting more expensive, and you decided that you're going to lay off the chef and hire a short order cook. But that's kind of the way that we seem to plan things. So we kind of forget what business we're in. 
So let's talk about that a little bit, because I, I think that's a great analogy. And, you know, I think since I've come back to the East, I've heard the call in the newspaper and on the radio, people saying we need to go back to hospital diploma programs because we had good workers and we had service and we had no concerns and there was always a constant supply. Yeah. What do you say to that, Kathleen? <laughs> Well, I, I heard that, you know, when we had a nursing shortage, you know, a while ago. And, I, and again, it goes back to this. How much how much knowledge do you need to do what is considered women's work? And, you know, I was originally a graduate from a diploma program. And I can tell you that the patients that we looked after were nowhere near as complex as they are now in terms of the technology and the medications and the acuity. Mm-hmm. But you have to remember that. The people that were in ICU in 1970, you know, they they were they would be on a med surge unit today, mm-hmm. and the ones that are in ICU today would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got the increased acuity and complexity, and we think that we can still prepare nurses for that kind of care in the way we did 50 years ago. This is this is nutty, but it's again, it's about thinking we just need a body for that place and it's kind of a a Taylorist industrial assembly line way of thinking and Mm -hmm. I think I was saying to the other day that sometimes when I think about nursing work now it reminds me of the old I Love Lucy episode where um, Ethel and Lucy got the job in the candy factory and they kept speeding up the assembly line (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this is part of, I think, people politically trying to come up with simple solutions to very complex problems. Yeah. And the reality is that you can't go back. I mean, this is a totally new place and time, and we need new solutions to these problems. And I think it also speaks to the issue of our existing healthcare providers not fully working to their full scope of practice. And this we've seen time and time again, you know, the whole underutilization of nurse practitioners in this country, you know, we have a huge problem with primary care on the East Coast and the lack of of family physicians. So it speaks to that whole issue of realizing the benefits and the optimal practice we can get from all of these people. It's quite true. I mean, we we don't use, uh, say, physiotherapists, for example, in in terms of um, assessing people with joint problems. And we know from clinical examples that if you use advanced practice physiotherapists as part of an orthopedic team, that a lot of people do better post-op with a joint replacement because they've had their soft tissue worked on in advance. Or, or because they found out that they didn't really need a joint replacement, that soft tissue and exercise was enough. So there's one example. It's a non-nursing example. But, you know, ordinary registered nurses can prescribe medications for things that they are competent to assess and treat. And they've been doing this for 15 years in the United Kingdom. It seems to be very difficult to move that particular um, agenda here in Canada, even though the regulators have been working on on strategies to do that. And in many cases, we're treating nurse practitioners like physician assistants, and they're a totally different kind of practitioner. And if they are liberated to practice appropriately, they can make a really big difference in health outcomes. 
there was a recent CBC um, news item online about um, British Columbia recognizing the value of nurse practitioners for working with certain types of high needs clients. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're complex medically, but they're high needs and they need time. And they don't, they don't um, respond well to a seven minute or an 11 minute office visit with a physician. Well, we you can need- only bring one question. Yeah, one, one problem. And if you're a diabetic and you happen to have a foot ulcer and high blood pressure and your blood sugar is out of whack and your cardiovascular system isn't functioning great, that does not fit well with that kind of a, a model of, um, again, this industrialized assembly line kind of care. So um, if we can really rethink about healthcare as a human service and what business are we in and what are we really trying to accomplish, then I think we can start to think about the skills and abilities and knowledge of a whole range of providers and what we could do if we actually had high performing teams of people, each bringing in their expertise to um, address needs I just can't believe that we can't let nurses prescribe, and I'm not talking about nurse practitioners here, who are out in the community visiting somebody and find out they've got an upper respiratory infection or a urinary tract infection, mm-hmm. that we can't deal with that, that people have to, you know, um, they have all kinds of blockages to access to care based on underlying assumptions about how a healthcare system should work that I think Florence Nightingale would recognize. It's almost back to fundamentals, isn't it? But it's also, it's a refocusing is what I hear you describing. And and something I heard Anne Snowden say was about thinking about leadership by collaboration, which to me, you know, we talk about transformational leadership, but leadership by collaboration to me speaks to a whole different way of doing this business. And, And I think team functioning and really focusing on this, I mean, there's been a lot of lip service paid to interprofessional education. And I think some places do it well, but I think by and large, um, we have a ways to go in this space. And I think it would, would help us to realize some of that optimization of scopes of practice. Absolutely. And uh, the healthcare system is conservative. Um, and there are good reasons for that because it's a high risk industry. But sometimes our conservatism, it really shoots us in the foot. Well, listen, I'm I'm watching the clock here. I think we've um, pretty much used up our time, Kathleen, but I, I did want to say thank you for your continued leadership after so many substantive contributions to practice and academia and policy over the years. Um, I think it's a great opportunity to just recap some of these issues that came out in your podcast uh, series. And I think that, I remain ever optimistic that we do have the leadership in this country to make a difference um, and to do things in a way that's going to really benefit the citizens of this country and and actually help our profession to flourish. But we do have work to do. And I don't know if you have any last words for our, our listeners today. Well, I think that we have to retain a sense of optimism because I think we do have evidence behind some of the recommendations that nurses are making for how to improve the workplace, how to improve the practice, how to improve the utilization of health human resources to meet the needs of Canadians. 
And uh, so I think that we need to be listening to the people who provide care, whether that's physicians or nurses or physiotherapists or pharmacists, because people do know what would make it better. And um, it, it will require though, over um, an overarching coordination and leadership for change and sustained intervention. Uh, it can't be episodic. It's It's gotta be, we're going to get on this wagon and we're gonna stick with it for a couple of decades yeah. to, turn, to turn the ship around. Well, we didn't get in this overnight. So there, there is a lot to be done. So thank you again, and thank you all for listening. I do encourage you, if you haven't already, go ahead and listen to the other podcasts in the series. There's some great messages there and more detail on some of the issues that we touched upon this afternoon. So thank you all. Thank you, Kathleen. 